Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that presents two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we're excited to bring you Jeffrey Deaver, the New York Times best-selling author of the thriller The Midnight Lock, in conversation with John Gilstrap, New York Times best-selling author of the action novel Blue Fire. They'll discuss their work, lives, passions, and creative process. Whether you're a Tolkienite, interested in the subjectivity of writing, or are curious about the difference between mysteries and thrillers, there's something for everyone. Inspiration starts now. Well, hello, John. Why, Jeff? What are you doing here? Uh, uh, well, that's a good question. I'm talking to you for, uh, for a while, and uh, one of the uh, most fun things we do, and this is kind of interesting because um, we're now recording what, in effect, we do once a week with some uh, other friends occasionally, uh, sit down with Zoom and kind of, uh, you know, in this day and age where we can't get together quite as much as we used to, it's kind of fun to uh, stay in touch. It is fun to stay in touch. We've, we've been doing this in one form or another in an unofficial way, normally with an adult beverage for 25 years, give or take. 25 years. Oh my gosh. I guess that's, I guess that's about right. Yeah. We have been, um, uh, living roughly in the same area, Northern Virginia, I'm in both in North Carolina and Northern Virginia. And we, uh, uh, you know, get together when we can. Uh, but I will say, haven't you found that this last two years has been, it's difficult for everyone, of mm-hmm. course. But, um, you know, we sit in a dark room and write. So it's very important for us to have human contact and get out there. And that's kind of been denied us. And, you know, you can only watch so many Curb Your Enthusiasm reruns or Bobby Flay reruns before you start to go crazy. I think this has, this has made me go a little crazy, I think, quite honestly. I mean, it's I felt my... The isolation, I feel my mood has darkened. I mean, nothing scary, but um, it's I really miss people. Now, of course, as as we're recording this, the the stuff is is lifting and, and things are becoming less draconian. But I am such a type A guy. I'm such a true extrovert. You know, I draw energy from being in a crowd mm-hmm. and being with people. And, you know, we used to get how many conferences we would go to every year that would have hundreds of authors who over the years have become really good friends. And, and we just we've been out of touch. And I'm sorry, you know, Facebook mm-hmm. and, and even Zoom doesn't quite handle it. So I, I'm anxious to no, be out among people again. It's it's not the same thing at all. And I'm curiously, you know, we're, we're very dear friends. I'm the opposite. I'm an introvert. That is, I draw energy from uh, from solitude. I'm never happier then when I, I'm in a dark room, my dog's at my feet or in my lap, which is awkward it's because the, the lightest one weighs about 65 pounds. Um, and, uh, you know, banging away at the keys and coming up with ideas. But counterbalancing that is like once a once a week, I would um, surface and have a dinner party. And I know you like to entertain. I like to entertain. But not having that, so I, I just plow on through. And I found it a productive time. I mean, I did two novels. Uh, about five or six short stories. Uh, how about you? Do, was it productive for you as well? I think it was. You've done you've done two books at once, right? Well, yeah, I've, I'm doing two series right now. I'm finishing up the Victoria Emerson thriller series. Um, I say I finish finishing it up. It's a, I see it as a trilogy, and I'm writing the third book, but it may very well live on. And then I have the Jonathan Grave books that have been going on forever. But no, you know, I don't think it has changed my production output. You approach this business entirely differently than I do. We've learned over the years. Um, you really like write for eight hours a day. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you type with your eyes closed. I have to watch my fingers because I don't use them all. Uh, 
so I, I just I get I get butt tired being in a seat for all for all that time. So you know I'm good for four or five hours a day, um, but I, until I'm on deadline, and then it's just nuts, sure. and it's twelve hours a day. Uh, but, but no, I don't think it really didn't change much of anything. Interesting, you bring that up. I heard a uh, a writer. I don't know who it was, but a, a famous sort of writer. I, and I would put that in the like the nineteenth century sort of writer, one of the James brothers, or, or someone like that. No, no, not Jesse James brothers. The other, like <laughs> Henry James, uh, that 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 uh, that family. And uh, and he said, I think it was interesting. Uh, anybody who writes anything more than two thousand words a day, just throw it out. And that's, uh, you know, I mean, we've done that easily. You, what was your record? Didn't you hit? Oh my gosh, what was it? I did. I did forty thousand words in twenty days. Oh my gosh! And when I was finishing up the last grave book, but I put myself in that position, and I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I used to have a full time job for most of my books. I had a full time job while I was producing uh, the same number of books, and. So now I do nothing. Well, my only official job is is to write, and I still go face on fire, screaming to the deadline. I, I don't understand that about me. There, there, there's an expression. I may get it wrong, and please correct me. But it's somebody's law. You know, I hope someday there's a Jeffrey's law, so that you know people will like Moore's law. The storage space doubles every year, and a computer, whatever that is. But this was someone who said, I think this was it. The amount of time required to complete a task is basically equal to the amount of time you've allotted for it. Meaning, if you've got a year uh, to produce a book, uh, you'll produce a book. If you've decided you're going to spend a week writing the same book, it will take you a week to do the same thing. And I am, a, I am the ultimate procrastinator, um, uh, which kind of brings up an interesting point. I'm just kind of jumping around here in thoughts, but um, there are stages of writing a book and I like some much better than others. What, what are the stages of writing that, that you enjoy the, the ones that you absolutely detest? I, my very favorite part is the, the final editing process. Once, once I've gotten all the way to the end of the story and I know that there's a beginning and a middle and an end and there's a resolution to the story and all that stuff. Um, I, I love going back through and reading and correcting the little stuff. That's really my, my favorite part. But the rest of it I find to be equally hard uh, to make sure that the story is going, that, that I'm not making mistakes along the way. I'm not pushing the characters into places they don't need to go. And oddly enough, I rarely do. I, normally I'm, I'm pleased with, with the response when I get, or the, uh, the product when I get to the end. What are the parts that you like and dislike most? Making up stuff, I mean, that's really tough in the sense that, and it's not the ideas. I have plenty of ideas, but, um, and, and actually what we'll talk to, uh, what we'll talk about just after this, I guess, is kind of our, our approach to planning the, planning the book. But uh, I will look at um, something that I know I need to write. I have to get my character uh, into the room, and he or she has to find a clue. And I know that's the part that comes next, but I sit down and I have to, generate that prose and uh, you know I start with uh, it was a dark and stormy night and what comes after that oh I have I have no idea and it eventually gets it but anyway it's just filling in that prose and our books are about the same length about a hundred thousand words that's a lot of prose but I agree with you completely once that first second or third draft is done then um, 
uh, I just sit back and enjoy it. It's the, the wrestling uh, with the finding what word works. And, you know, have you ever been in that situation where there's a, a paragraph and, and at the beginning of the paragraph, there's the absolute perfect word. It fits so well. And then you come to the end of the paragraph and you need that same word again, but you can't use it because you used it beforehand. It's that frustrating stuff for me. Well, and, I, and that's the, the fact that writing is about readers, as we both agree, and the reading experience is really fragile. So if you do reuse words or if you, uh, yeah, if you use the $12 word where the $2 word belongs or the other way around and you eject the, the reader out of the story, they might be gone for the rest of the book. And, and I do, and I do think that that's, that's stressful. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's stressful in a, in a creative kind of way. And the, the nice part is that we're not doing this live, right? We don't do, write the books live. We can always go back and, and fix it later, but I'm, I'm disinclined to do that. I don't, I will, well, here's a question for you. I, I, I will, I will struggle with the plot point real time until I get it solved. I don't go jump ahead and write something else and then come back to it. What do you do? Well, um, well, this gets us to a very fundamental uh, matter, a difference between us, uh, to some extent. Uh, you know, the world of writers is divided into the plotters, those are the outliners, and the pantsers, as in writing by the seat of the pants. And the um, outliners, like myself, plan everything out ahead of time. And then the, uh, the pantsers sit down with a rough idea of where the story is going to go. They have an idea, of course. But... Um, They'll um, they'll kind of uh, create the book from start to finish in that sequential order. I uh, with the outline because that's done first. I have the luxury of if I'm if I'm facing a difficult uh, section, I cannot figure out the words to go in. I just can't wrestle the story in the way I want it to go. I can jump to the end. I could write the ending. You know, right now I could write the beginning at the end, or the and that just uh, makes it. Uh, makes it easier for me. I mean, I, I don't, sometimes I don't really enjoy the writing process, believe it or not. And that's one of the things that just, that, that I can kind of, I, I guess makes it a bit easier for me that I don't have to confront that, uh, that I call it a block, I guess, that, you know, all writers have. Well, I just figure, you know, my, my kind of an engineer by background. And if I, if I don't have the story right at each step along, that right, with an asterisk, you know, I, I will know that it's a little bit broken, but if, if the plot isn't working in the middle for me, because I don't outline, um, if, if I'm not sure about something at the, at the one, the 30% mark of, of a book, then I can really be in trouble at the 70% mark if, because everything is, is based off of that, if that makes sense. So it, it's, um, I just, I plot on through and I don't know how, and maybe you're using that as an example, but you know, the, the ending is the dessert. I can't imagine writing the ending. In fact, that's one of the problems I tried. I tried outlining for a long while, inspired by you actually in our earlier, in our very early conversations decades ago. And what I found was that the process of outline, outlining took a lot of the for me, took a lot of the pleasure of the storytelling out because it's it, I'm no longer sort of developing the story as as I as I play the movie in my head. Well, that's that's very interesting because um, much of the pleasure for me is the Rubik's cube of the outline, the puzzle of getting the story uh, down. I have a big uh, board that I I think you've seen. Uh, I put post-it notes 
uh, up there with, you know, here's somebody's killed here. And then I put a post-it note a little lower than that. A detective finds this clue and, uh, you know, then put another one up. Cliched confrontation between the captain and his, his detective. Oh, no, I have to take that out because it's a cliche. But, I, but, but wrestling with that puzzle uh, is very uh, enjoyable to me. But I, but I will say then after I've done that and I write uh, a portion and go back and look at it, I know you, you kind of polish it as you go. I will look at it and say, who on earth wrote this? You know what? It just is, is terrible. And then I have to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And, uh, but when a book is, is done, you do a lot of rewriting, don't you, or, or not? No, uh, I do a lot of rewriting, but not when the book is done. I start every day by rewriting what I wrote yesterday. So by the time I, I get to the end, again, because, because I'm always screaming on deadlines, I don't have the luxury of going back from the beginning and, and go through. So um, I polish as I go. And then at the very end, it's, it's kind of a light. Um, it's, it's more adjusting prose than it is moving plot points at, that, at, at the end. Yeah, one thing I found interesting, and uh, this is another uh, difference between us. Uh, I, um, when I rewrite, the last stage is to listen to my book. And there's a program I use. It's called Natural Reader. And uh, this is not a plug. I'm not getting paid for it. In fact, I paid for the program. And um, you put your, well, basically it reads your book back to you. And I think Word, uh, the Word Processing Program, I think that does it too. I just haven't found that part of the program. But, um, and I had the manuscript printed out in front of me. And I listened to it word for word. And I find a lot of typos. I'm a sloppy typist. I type quickly, but I'm a sloppy typist. I found a lot of typos, and I found a few other things. But uh, I don't think you've, you've ever done that, have you, or have any interest in doing it? I that? don't have the patience for it. I, I find that I have a hard time actually listening to audiobooks, um, just because they tend, there's a pacing, there's a there's a audio pacing to the reading that is, I find, annoyingly slow. And to hear to hear my own stuff read back to me in what I presume is a fairly computerized voice, um, kind of monotonous. I, I can see where it would be helpful, but I, I'd shoot myself. I, I couldn't. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I laugh about 2001. It sounds a lot like Hal. If anybody's seen that film, you know, uh, hello, Dave. <laughs> and uh, it is, uh, I, I just, you know, but what we're kind of talking about now is that, uh, there's nothing more subjective than writing. Whatever works, uh, works. And uh, over the uh, the years I've been doing this, I've kind of settled into these uh, these patterns. And uh, uh, you know, the same for uh, same for you, same for every writer. You know, it's you can't ever tell anybody this is wrong or this is right. Uh, it's just whatever works for you. It's it's a hard thing to tell a story. It's a hard thing to get a uh, an idea from your head uh, translated so that that idea goes from your head through the words into the reader's head and heart. And I, uh, you know, I, I, whatever works, works. Well, and you and I both write in, in what I think they call the close in third person. I, I, but so in addition to all of that, with the plot working out, the story's got to be told in such a way that there's an emotional attachment be, to, between the characters, the, the, the fictional emotional attachment, and then the real emotional attachment that you're trying to get from the reader as they're experiencing all of this. So there's a lot of moving parts in, in creating a book. No, I, think, I think that's the key word, emotion. I don't want somebody to finish one of my books and say, oh, that was interesting. You know, I want them to say, oh my God, I survived 
this book, my palms are sweating, I missed a bus stop. Uh, I just want that kind of, uh, that kind of connection. Uh, you know, and I, I look at some of the, the literature from the, uh, uh, you know, the past centuries, and it can be, you know, it can be well written, it can be very flowery uh, prose, but the story moves so slowly. And I, I guess, you know, I'm a, a boomer, I was born in 19, 1950, and I have a short attention span. I can't imagine what some of the, I don't know, what generation are we on now? X, XYZ or something? I, I, I think we're past millennial, but I don't know what the new We could is. make one up right now. We could create our own meme for that. Some, uh, uh, But anyway, uh, Generation I, impatient. How's that? There you go. I just want the story to move. That's why they call it a thriller. And, um, and even, you know, one of the most formative books of my uh my youth, quite literally, I read it when I was in high school, it was Day of the Jackal uh, by Frederick Forsyth, which I've always thought was the, the perfect thriller. And I reread it recently, and even, what was that, mid-70s, I guess, when, when he wrote that? And even then, the sense of pacing in a thriller was different. It was just the sentences are longer, and and the description of places is is more detailed than... Uh, than you see now. I, th I think it's kind of interesting. I often wonder if that's not because of the internet. You, when exotic places were described, even as late as the 70s and 80s, um, most of the readers had never seen it and had no way to see it. But now, you go, you know, Google anything, and and you can, you can see what any town, any cathedral, any anything looks like. And I wonder if if that hasn't cut back on some of the, the descriptive prose. Well, that just brought back a, a, a memory. I, I was a nerd when I was growing up. I had no talent for sports or anything at all, um, anything at all athletic. But I, um, I love books. And one of the things I loved about books was that they taught me about places uh, that I maybe had heard about, maybe hadn't, had not even heard about, uh, you know, exotic locations. And I uh, would go through... Uh, uh, you know, uh, like Jack London, uh, I'd read those stories about the uh, Call of the Wild and um, Ian Fleming books about Europe. And those were, you know, those were descriptive books. We, um, I think, needed that to to get a sense of what was it like to live in a place like that. And and some, you know, in, uh, in the past, too, I like some uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, who wrote the Tarzan series, you know, back in the 1800s. Uh, but now you're right. You just click a button and there you go. But isn't it great for research? Oh, it is great for research. Didn't you tell me once that you speak Elvish? No, Speaking not of... at all. <laughs> I won't. I won't go on. But are, are we talking nerd? <laughs> Were you so, a Trekker, a, a Star Trekker? You know, I when in the in the 60s and 70s, I, I enjoyed the uh, the original series and then I kind of like Next Generation with uh, Jean Luc Picard uh, can't can't pull up the the actor's name, um, but then I, no I mean there comes a point that it's it it becomes overwhelming and I don't I've never been a huge sci-fi guy and I am not at all a fantasy um, you know the, the I will grant <clears throat> that the Hobbit world is spectacular and certainly the books and movies have done well. It's just, it doesn't capture me. I much prefer, you know, real people and, and real situations. Now, science fiction like um, Michael Crichton, great Michael Crichton, late great Michael Crichton would, would do, um, that would engage me. But that's a different kind of science fiction. That's kind of 
uh, I don't know. It, it didn't. Once you go into space, you you lose me. I guess. Oh well, that's a good point. I mean, I remember uh, Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke. They told stories that happened to be set, some in outer space, but in the future as well, and involve, often involving uh, science uh, technologies that we didn't have at the time they were writing. Now they, some of them seem rather passe, but uh, that was good storytelling. And you know, you didn't rely on the bells and whistles of the uh, the world of high tech. It was just you know human in humans in in drama. And oh, that brings up a, a, a good question. Uh, who, do you remember who you read back then? I mean, it, did I, I, I mentioned uh, Ian Fleming? I just uh, John D. McDonald was somebody I read. Who, who when you were growing up? Who, who did you read? Who did you like? I thought Alastair MacLean hung the moon. You know, I read all of those those books. Um, early, we're talking past Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators and Hardy Boys and all of that. Um, when I was very young, there was a it was either you were there or we were there. It was a historical series. It always put a twelve or thirteen year old boy in the middle of Gettysburg or Pearl Harbor or you know some place. I read to largely to escape. Um, I discovered mysteries uh, fairly early on. But I found that so many of the mysteries move too slowly. God, this is terrible to say. I have such respect for the the pulp masters of of old, and you know, even going back to Agatha Christie and and uh, Conan Doyle, they they just move very 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 slowly for me. Um, and but adventure novels. Uh, I'm trying to think who is. There's a guy that wrote about dogs. Jules Verne, for instance, or uh, I mean, that was uh, kind of science fiction. But uh, I don't think I've I've seen Jules Verne movies. I'm not sure I've ever read Jules Verne. Um, they, they were um, I, I I never knew the concept of young adult books until I was older and past that stage. But I don't even know if we had young adult books. I get well. You mentioned the Hardy Boys and Nancy mm -hmm. Drew, but uh, I didn't have much interest in that. But the Jules Verne books. Um, and the Arthur C. Clarke books, uh, and um, who were some of the others? Uh, uh, well, I think I mentioned, uh, oh, uh, uh, from the prior, prior century, uh, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, you know, just good, solid adventure books. And I, I guess they were written originally for an adult audience, but uh, I just, you know, after eight or nine, you had pretty much all the vocabulary, and uh, I just spent summer after summer... Uh, reading those. I'd be in better shape what's, now. What's spectacular I... about that era of book, um, you go into Dumas and some of, of those those other, the old school adventure stories. They didn't see a movie to base it on. They didn't, they didn't, they had to make up what is now a cliche was brand new because they were the ones that created it and brought it to life on the page. And what a, what a tremendous imagination to to be able to do that uh, personally i think i'm very proud of the work i do but i know that i base a lot of stuff on um not base it on on movies and books but my sense of timing and uh, movies and, and television my sense of timing and pacing a lot of that is is influenced by that yeah same, same is true for me i uh i think back to some of uh, what influenced me creatively in the 1950s and, um, I, you know, I mentioned Ian Fleming, who started writing the, in the early 50s, uh, John D. MacDonald, uh, Dashiell Hammett, 
who wrote the Sam Spade series. But the, um, uh, the movie Shane, for instance, uh, is the basis for my character uh, now, Coulter Shaw, The Stranger Comes to Town. Uh, some of the John Wayne uh, Westerns, a lot of the, um, you know, that was post-World War II, but not that post-World War II. And, uh, uh, you know, I think of all the the great uh, films that I would watch over and over again. And it wasn't easy to watch them over and over again because you had to either sit through in the theater, sit through them twice, or pray it would come on TV. And, you know, you, you couldn't click and see, oh, I'm going to binge on this now. No, you just had to wait for it. But I was, I was very influenced by... Uh, Movies, and it's probably why I have this uh, impatience uh, about uh, both <laughs> in my creating my own books and then reading others' books. That uh, you know, I want to let's go, let's move the story along. Yeah, the um, you talk about the old influencers. Um, oh, I have to say this just because we're talking about books that I read, and I would really be remiss if I did not mention Stephen King. I read every word that Stephen King wrote when I was uh, high school and college. Um, the other night I watched an episode of, it was sort of a forgettable episode, but it was an episode of The Twilight Zone. And I thought, how influential was that to a generation of, of storytellers, especially in the short story world with the twist and the, you know, that, that, that dramatic oomph that went into the storytelling there. Uh, I, I love that. I, I own the, uh, uh, the whole collection on DVDs. We, you know, they still have these things, discs. It's not all downloaded now. These big silver shiny discs that you can put in some computers, not all computers. But I have the whole series. And uh, if you watch a lot of them over and over again, you kind of tip to it. I mean, I, you kind of can say, okay, I know he's not really who he looks like he should right. be. But uh, but that was a big influence for me. And I love short fiction. And short fiction is all about uh, twists. You know, we don't have my short stories have no the characters have to be credible. There's no question about that. But it's more about the, uh, you know, I call it a sniper's bullet of a twist. But I'd forgotten about Twilight Zone. Oh, and speaking of Stephen King, he, like you, is another pantser. I don't think he's ever outlined a single one of his books in his life. Um, and, you know, of course, a huge fan. And I have to say, I kind of like his non-supernatural writing mm -hmm. better because he nails the characters so well puts them in such intense conflict, and he has uh, no problem at all with killing them off. So you're on the edge of your seat thinking, no, no, it's the main character. I love this person. Oops, there they go. Well, that's the beauty of the short story. Um, and again, this <laughs> sensei, Jeff Deaver, uh, you brought this to mind ages and ages ago, that the short story for an established author, you know, we, we have our audiences and, and they come to depend on a certain... Uh, a certain kind of storytelling, a very good guys are good and bad guys are bad, at least in my books. And, um, you know, it's, there's, there's an expectation of certain satisfying endings. And in my books, you get the family relationships and all of that. And as in yours, the short story is, is like tabula rasa. You can, you can be as, as I could be as not John Gilstrap as I want to be in a short story. And, and not lose audience. Exactly. It's, it's very fun. And I'm not going to tell you the plot of it, but one of my more popular short stories basically was, uh, uh, it's more clever than I'm going to describe it, but a 12-year-old um, uh, girl who uh, murdered her father because um, he wouldn't let her go to the, uh, uh, the prom. 
uh, and he was being very, uh, very protective of her. And the final scene is, of course, her putting the corsage or whatever you call that thing that the, the girls would put on their wrist before she goes to the corsage, happily going and not having a moment's uh, remorse for her father, who was a fairly obnoxious character, I, I, I will admit. And uh, I just enjoyed that so much because everybody was despicable. And mm -hmm. yet, um, you know, you came away thinking, wow, that was that was pretty good. Now, in a novel, I would not dare do that. Um, and you, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping around here a little bit, but you mentioned something important uh, very briefly about the characters, the family in your books. And nobody does family relationships better than you do. And where does that come from? I mean, obviously, you're drawing your family experience, but how do you integrate that into... Uh, uh, say, a Jonathan Grave story, which is about, well, uh, why don't you mention a little bit about Jonathan Grave and how the, the, the family and those connections work into the book? Well, I, Jonathan Grave is a freelance hostage rescue specialist and um, former Delta operator, and I think I'm in my, I'm writing the 15th book in the series, but it's not, re it's not really a series. It's a, it's like standalone books with recurring characters. Um, and you know, what is more compelling than, than family? It's just, it's the way I'm, I'm wired. Um, you know, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm the quintessential family guy. And if you put a family in jeopardy, um, the, the stakes just get higher. And the things that have to be done, um, Jonathan always works, usually works outside the law, often with a wink and a nod from the law. Um, but I know the, the family relationships are what's important to me. And I think it's by putting it at risk, I'm going to give this, this reference to Stephen King. Cause I, I, I think that he's the one that said it, but I, I don't know for sure. Um, that in, in fiction, you endanger the thing that's most important to you and, and it comes alive on the page. And I think that's where those family relationships come from. Yeah, that may have been in his great book on writing. Uh, have you read that? I have. It's it's it's. I think it's the best book on writing uh, out there. So, after a brief message from a sponsor, we're going to trade ideas for three books we'd like each other to have on a desert island. Hi, I'm Carrie Mayer, author of the national best-selling book, The Paris Bookseller. So I'm not just a writer, I'm an avid reader. And since Always Authors is sponsored by Bookfinity, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it. Bookfinity is a website that is built by readers for readers. So you can get personalized book recommendations, create and share your book lists, review books, and refer friends to earn rewards. You start by taking a quick quiz to discover your reader type. And once you complete the quiz, you'll be taken to your My Bookfinity account. I took the quiz and got my reader type. I am a heroin addict, which is so accurate because I do love strong female leads. Now, when I log into my Bookfinity account, I will get personalized book recommendations based on my reader type. Bookfinity also has a like it or lose it function, so I can quickly like the books that I'm interested in or lose the ones that I'm not. And it has a unique review system that goes beyond a star rating. I love that I can review a book based on how it made me feel and recommend it to others. To get started, visit bookfinity.com and take the reader type quiz and create your personalized account today. Always Authors supports independent booksellers around the country. And on this episode, we'd like to recognize Root & Press Independent Cafe and Bookstore in Worcester, Massachusetts. 
Books and coffee, is there anything better than that? Well, now, um, John, I was thinking about uh, some books that I would like to give you to have on a desert island um, because it was easier to think of books for you than it was to think of, of books that I would want. And I've come up with a couple of, uh, uh, of good ones here. Well, three good ones, actually. Uh, the first one is Army Survival Manual FM 21-76, which is the uh, Army go-to book for surviving uh, anywhere, including uh, desert islands. I would also uh, recommend you, now this is not news to you, Harry Potter, because I know you're such a Harry Potter fan, and I understand you've read it, but that would be, I think, a, a, a comfort for you, because it has to get a little lonely on a desert island. And finally, I'm going to recommend a John le Carre book, a Perfect Spy, uh, th that is an adventure story. It's about espionage, obviously, but I also think it's one of the, um, uh, the best examinations of a uh, father-son relationship I've ever read. And we were talking about family earlier, and it really, uh, really nails that subject. So uh, I hope you, uh, hope you enjoy that. Hope there are uh, plenty of margaritas and coconuts where you, uh, whatever island you end up on. Well, and Jeff, for you, I'm going to recommend, much along the same lines, uh, back in the 70s and 80s, there was a Foxfire series of books on how to survive out in the wilds. This is, this is how you turn sand into water or, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a fine way to spend your time as, as you're desiccating out on, on the desert island. Um, for fiction, I believe that I would go with Different Seasons from Stephen King, which had the, um, the body which became um, Stand By Me and the Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption as well as Apt Pupil and um, the Ray, Ray Langoliers, which was the, the least good of the books. And then finally, just to kind of escape, I would end up assigning Robert Rourke's book, The Old Man and the Boy, which is all about being outdoors and appreciating the outdoors where you are. I've heard about that, and I will uh, be sure to buy those and then uh, look for a desert island to, uh, to head to in the near future. Let me ask you a question about, you, you do, you're famous for a lot of things, not the least of which is your, your really twisty stories. You know, the, every, there's, the train goes off the track, I mean that in a very positive way. You know, people end up getting diverted. They're, they're, they think they're doing X, but in fact, boom, now all of a sudden they're diverted to, to go uh, somewhere else within the story. Going back, because this has been your trademark pretty much forever. Was that an intentional thing on your part? Because there wasn't a lot of twisty stuff out there, or is that just your natural storytelling? Um, well, now I say I, I do this for, I write for the readers, you know, they, like you. They're, they're the gods out there. Everything I do has to give them uh, a good experience. You're not going to please everybody. I mean, mm -hmm. look at your reviews, look at my reviews. Most are good, but there's somebody that you just cannot make happy. There's no question about that. But I was a reader once, too. I still am, of course. And what did I like? Um, take Agatha Christie, Agatha Christie or uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Um, it was the twist. It was the surprise at the end. And the Twilight Zone as well. And that just gave me a thrill. 
And I thought, well, if it gave me a thrill, if I can do that, it's going to give other people uh, a thrill uh, as well. And that's why my books are uh, fall into a you know a fairly circumscribed category. They uh, take place over only a couple days. There are a lot of internal reversals, and uh, three surprise endings. Uh, really, I have like three surprise endings. It looks like the book's over with, then there's another ending and another, because readers are so smart. They can figure out a twist. And if a twist is what I'm trying to deliver, I have to give them more twists than just one, because then it might I run the risk of uh, falling flat. And I, you know, I love great prose, too. You know, Cormac McCarthy or uh, Thomas Harris, uh, who at Silence of the Lambs is an incredible stylist. I don't have that voice. I'm a very uh, pedestrian writer. I put words together functionally, but uh, that's the the one. My one value added is I try to uh, try to trick people. Well, and to, to say you you don't have that kind of voice, you don't have Thomas Harris's voice, obviously, because he took it. Um, but I, 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 but you certainly had a very strong voice in uh, in in your books. What I find interesting is. I keep emphasizing we've known each other for a long time because it comes into play. And, and I know uh, you are a stylist and you're, you're a very good writer, but your voice for the Coulter Shaw books, I don't know if you did this on purpose or not either, but is significantly different than the storytelling voice for the Lincoln Rhyme books. At least that's how I see it. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was done in, intentionally. Uh, they're, they're more, um, the Lincoln Rhyme books, uh, you know that listeners may remember from the uh, the movie The Bone Collector. If they haven't haven't read the book, he's uh, uh, he's an intellect. He's um, very thoughtful. He's introspective, and there's a lot of internal uh, monologue in in those books. Colter Shaw is the gunslinger who comes to town, and he um, uh, he doesn't talk a lot. He doesn't think a lot. He's he you know he's he's a character I, I hope readers like. Uh, the the books seem to be doing well, but I, um, I I intentionally did that to create a character who was the antithesis of Lincoln, who is you know housebound largely, and Coulter Shaw travels around the uh, country and gives me a chance to uh, you know kind of flex some writer muscles. But speaking of multiple series, you're you're the exact example of that too. Talk about the difference between Jonathan and Victoria. Well, yeah, I mean. If- First of all, there's the setting. The Victoria Emerson series is is set in the aftermath of of a nuclear war, um, and she is she is one. Her mission is to help society regrow. She's a natural leader, and um, she is she's the the un, unwitting or unwilling uh, judge and mayor and you know. She's the outsider who comes in and can calm the boring parties and get things done. Of course, it is a thriller, or they're all thrillers, so the warring parties aren't always willing to be to to be moderated. Um, but Jonathan is is oh, and, and, and Victoria is a single mom, and she's she's a badass, but she's a single mom, and she and she's got to wrangle kids and all, all this stuff within the structure of this post-apocalyptic world. And I hasten to say. My publisher gets upset when I use the word post-apocalyptic. I assure you, there are no zombies. Okay, this is this is <laughs> this is not that kind of post-apocalyptic. Well, like, when, when in doubt, I can't figure out where to go, so throw in a zombie. Exactly, exactly. Jonathan, on the other hand, is uh, very action-oriented. He's a door kicker, um, and he, he it's 
I think it's, they're subtle books, but Jonathan is not a subtle character. He, he's, um, so it's, it's an entirely different, they're two entirely different worlds. But I didn't intentionally, I don't know if the storytelling voices per se are, are different because I didn't set out to do that. I, I set out to make the characters different, but not necessarily to uh, make the storytelling different. The, uh, I find the, the, the voice is, uh, is consistent, but it's a very, uh, a very comfortable voice. Not the, the scenarios are not edgy and dangerous and so forth, but um, you know, I just follow along when I read your, read your books, or I, I do listen uh, to books. Sometimes uh, if I'm out walking, I will put one of your books in this natural reader thing. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'd like to think that's Victoria's voice. It probably isn't because she doesn't sound like a computer. I, I have no doubt, but it's a, uh, it's just a very comfortable, uh, comfortable listen to. It's like I could sit in front of a fire and read or listen to your, uh, I thank you. I appreciate that. I want to double back to, we were talking about the guy that comes from out of town or, you know, the culture Shaw to a limited extent, Jonathan Grave, the same, same guy, um, that it all comes back down to the Western, which I believe is the quintessential American storytelling canvas um although i guess the seven samurai or whatever from back in the day we're doing the same thing and in, in but um it never it is never not compelling whether it's it's the b movies that uh, from the 50s they could have been shot better but there's some really really good stories to be told there what is it about this this notion of the the, the Jonathan or the culture or the Shane or the, you know, whoever riding into town and saving the day. Why, why is that so intoxicating for people? Well, and uh, you know, what's uh, now I think about it, 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 it predates that because we can look at the Knights errant who would travel mm-hmm. around uh, the countryside searching for the Holy Grail or slain dragons. Um, and uh, maybe there's something within us that needs a hero like that. You know, who would not like to be saved by uh, someone who uh, comes to town and solves the problem, uh, you know, uh, takes out Jack Palance and uh, then moves on to another uh, another adventure? Um, and, and, you know, maybe we, too, wish we were somebody like that. Uh, I, I'm not going to ride into town on anything, uh, not even a bicycle. I might drive in. But I'm not going to, you know, get out and have a gunfight with somebody in the middle of the, uh, uh, the street. I'd probably try to reason with him and point out that I was an attorney, so he, he probably shouldn't beat me up. That could be a problem for him uh, legally. But uh, anyway, but I would, I would like to, I can kind of fantasize, you know, a la Walter Mitty. I can kind of fantasize that I would be someone like that. But, but it's, a, it's a tradition, you know, that goes way, way back. You know, as, and it's Dirty Harry, and it's the... I, I think what ultimately it comes down to is rising above the noise of of bureaucracy and all this stuff in the case of, of, of Dirty Harry, and actually in the case of Jonathan too. You rise above all of those those other you rise above all the reasons why you should just let this ride and let it be somebody else's problem. And instead of doing that, you go and you and you fix the problem and and win the day and risk risk a lot in the process and you don't put up with any and i'm not going to use the word on the podcast but you can figure out what (laughs) word might come next i'm not going to put up with any dot 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 um as we all would hope to do hope we'd have the courage to do 
whether it's bureaucratic or the bad guy or the people on our, our side, supposedly on our side. And uh, they just, uh, you know, these heroes uh, cut right to the heart of the matter. And they, uh, they don't tolerate anything. They, they don't tolerate uh, bigotry. Uh, they don't tolerate uh, intolerance. Somehow on Facebook, I still don't understand how it works. I'm not a big Facebook person uh, on my personal page. I have, uh, uh, you know, the Jeffrey Deaver uh, professional page, so you can see what I'm doing and, and so forth, and I can chat with uh, readers that way. But uh, on my personal page, somehow these clever algorithms noticed that I paused on, I think it was a Charles Bronson clip or maybe a Steven Seagal clip, and these are, the, of course, the strong silent heroes, and uh, they beat up, oh, I'm, I'm, my language really isn't like that, but they beat the you-know-what out of the bullies. And, uh, or maybe Jackie Chan or Bruce Lee as well. Well, the reason I'm saying all of these is that Facebook figured out, that clever algorithm again, that I, I enjoyed it, and bang, now in my feed, one after another. And I, A, I was offended that they had made that uh, presupposition, and B, I was delighted because I spent hours watching these things now, and I've actually gone to... Uh, some movies that I hadn't seen, kind of gritty, you know, 60s and 70s films where there's the hero, like the teacher, Tom Berenger, I think may have been a... a yeah, that, a, sounds, yeah, that right. sounds right. Yeah, I can't remember what the movie was. It was actually a very good movie. And he's a substitute teacher. Actually, it may have been The Substitute. That may have been the title. And he doesn't put up with any nonsense from the uh, the gangs. And, you know, that's just, it's intoxicating. I just wandered into the Blackboard Jungle the uh, Glenn Ford and um, uh, Vic, uh, oh, come on. Vic, the, the guy unfortunately decapitated, Morrow, Vic, Vic Morrow as, as the bad guy. And uh, it, it's school, school violence, I guess, has been a topic for quite some time because that's an old movie. I think that's 50s. Evan, Evan Hunter, the um, um, alter ego of the fellow who wrote the uh, 87th Precinct, whose name just went right out of my head, um, 87 Precinct series. McBain. Ed McBain. Evan Hunter was his, uh, uh, you know, some, it wasn't a literary novel, but it was a different sort of sort of novel. But I remember that one, uh, that one too. Um, but, uh, well, that's what we, you know, we do kind of write books that could be, you know, our, our template is modern day, but, uh, you know, you, you set it in medieval time, you could, our, our books would probably hold up. No internet, of course, and uh, the uh, horses. No, uh, Jonathan, I assume, doesn't ride a horse or hasn't lately. But um, uh, but the, I think these are stories that were, you know, are fairly universal. And ultimately satisfying. I think the, which kind of doubles back to writing for the reader. You know, if, if um, you've gotten those letters from people. In fact, I just got one last week, a letter, email, um, about people who, who, in this case, was was reading a book. They read my first book while they were on duty in Afghanistan, and and they and they said nice things. That's when you know that, that what you're doing is is worth something. It's worthwhile. And, um, and you know, sometimes um, in this day and age, where you know, let's face it, there are uh, there's a lot of competition to what we do. And last night, I was on was it Hulu, I guess, and I saw I found a series that I'd never heard of before. And uh, I'm enjoying it. I'll go to maybe Amazon Prime, and there'll be five new shows, uh, or Netflix five new shows I never heard of. And you know, let's face it, it's easy to uh, to sit down with a remote control or your hand on the a mouse and 
Uh, it's, it's a passive entertainment. Uh, it, it doesn't require the commitment of reading a book. You know, it's a little more effort to read a book, although I think a, a book is a much more engaging emotional experience than watching something on, a, uh, on the screen, especially a, a small screen. But it's, so all that competition is out there, and there's been a migration of people who want to be entertained to that, and, uh, and, and, and you know, book sales have been down a, a, a bit, uh, although I, I think that might be uh, coming up. Uh, I think they might be uh, improving uh, when we start to get back and do start doing the book events again live and going to the book festivals. But, um, you know, I just, um, I, I'm so gratified when somebody comes up to me and says, uh, it's kind of unexpected, but, oh, I just, I finished your latest book. And, uh, you know, I was going through a rough time and I was in the hospital actually, and I, this was a true story. And I took some of your books with me and um, I knew the endings, I knew the twist, but I wanted to have them with me anyway. And I read them again. You know, that, that does, that means something. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's not a little thing to, um, you and I had this discussion actually when I was retiring from the, um, my big boy job, as I would call it, to, to write full time. And I, I struggled, not, I don't struggle is too strong a word, but I think I, I posed it to you is, um, you know, the, the job I used to have uh, as a safety engineer and, you know, it had, it had real consequence, right? I mean, it, it was in the, in the immediate sense of explosives were involved, in, explosives were involved. Right. And, uh, and then when I was leaving it, I, I, I posed something like, is, is this entertainment business stuff as important? Am I going to be as satisfied? And and that's that's why I teed it up there for you because I think it's important for people to know that yeah it really is I mean being life without without escape um, whether it's by books or movies or or whatever would be tough well it's it's escape but it's also um, I, I guess I was going to say educational but that makes it sound uh, a little too academic um, we we read books and we learn about life we learn about courage. Uh, we learn about making uh, uh, choices, and uh, in in both of our well, in all of our books, yours and mine, we look at broader issues. Now, they're in the core; they're adventure stories. They move very quickly. They're thrillers. And you mentioned mysteries uh, a moment ago. Well, the difference I see between a mystery and a thriller, uh, this isn't mine. Uh, a mystery asks the question: What happened? You know, who killed uh, the uh, uh, the uh, pastor in the uh, the church? Uh, a thriller asks the question, what is going to happen? And it drives the story uh, forward uh, more. Um, but, you know, so the in solving the problems our characters solve and persevering through very arduous circumstances, well, is that a lesson about courage? Is that a lesson about um, some of the broader issues we talk about? I mean, in my book, uh, The Final Twist, I uh, have a subplot of the government incursion, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, corporate incursion into government. And uh, it's, it's a, a, I, I don't want to say anything more about it because it's a big twist if anybody wants, wants to read that. It, it's not the uh, end all and be all of the story, but it's a, it's a, a pedal tone. It's a, a, a sub, subplot that I think enhances the story. It gives something, uh, you know, people something to think about. And this is especially true in the Victoria uh, uh, books because you know you, you look at law you look at governance and um, uh, it kind of starting from the ground up 
and uh, that's those are important lessons there. Well, what does what does the law look like when there's no law anymore? When there there are no police, there's there's no there are no courthouses. Um, it, it becomes a. You still have to have rules in society, otherwise you, you have mayhem. But what is what do those rules look like? What how do you punish a thief? You can't just let a thief steal. So yeah, it, it was um, it was kind of interesting to do. Um, and I'm it's it's a it's that series is so entirely different than anything I've written before. Um, it's been it's been a lot of fun. It, it's like shifting gears and and writing something new. Let me talk to you a little bit about the like creativity in general. I know I'm not sharing any secrets because I've heard you say it out loud. Um, you used to be a folk singer and you have written music and you've written poetry and all of that. Certainly not going to ask you to sing anything. Um, but do you still do that at all? Or is that chapter kind of closed or? Well, as, as between singing, uh, one of us on this podcast has a, um, a wonderful singing voice and has sung in choirs and I mean, significant choirs, uh, sung for a movie score. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. And that's, that's not I, I mean, that's the other guy on this, uh, on this podcast. Um, and I have to say, I loved music very much. And if I had the talent, which I do not, um, I would still be performing. Uh, now I was a good songwriter. I mean, I, I, I could, Put words together very well. In fact, I, for my book XO, as in Hugs and Kisses, a few years ago, I wrote an album of country western songs that was produced. I didn't write the music. I, I wrote the lyrics, and then a, a producer in um, in um, Nashville put the music uh, to it, and it, it was a, a fun project. That part was very easy, uh, but that's really my only nod to to music now. Um, I I loved it. But I'm, in fact, I was, I got out my guitar and I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll uh, sing uh, to my, um, uh, my friend's uh, daughter's three years old. I think she's, yeah, she's about to turn four. And um, oh, it turned out I couldn't, uh, I couldn't do it live. So I said, well, I'll just record it. And they have all these programs that you can record. And then I listened to it <laughs> and I ended up reading her um, a Pete the Cat book instead because... <laughs> It, I just did not, I, even for a four-year-old, I couldn't hit the note. So, uh, but how about you? Do you do, uh, you know, I mean, it'd be kind of interesting to talk about other things we do aside from writing, but uh, how about you? Music-wise, do you still sing? Or? Not anymore. I was in, in um, choirs for quite some time. I mean, well, since college. And it just got to be, it got to be too much. It was the rehearsal schedule more than it was. I mean, I've, I've always enjoyed performing. I've always liked being in front of an audience, but never to sing. I, I like doing uh, lectures. I like doing seminars. I, I like being, I used to be in, in musical theater back, you know, way back in the day. I, I enjoy that. But the thought of having the stool downstage center with a spotlight on me singing a song, that, that I wouldn't sleep for a week before. I, it I would be absolutely terrifying. Well, uh, I, yeah, I, I guess I'm kind of oblivious about stuff. I mean, you and I, uh, we used to ski. I can't really ski much anymore, but I have some, uh, some vertigo. But um, obliviously, at age 40, I said, this ski stuff, you know, it sounds like it should be fun. I'll take it up. And, of course, I just zoomed down the, the, the mountain. It was icy. It was in New England and dislocated my shoulder first time, first time out. 
And I thought, what well, was it was really fun up to the dislocation part. Maybe I'll keep keep trying. And that's the kind of a, a oblivious, naive approach I would take to things. And the uh, uh, the folk singing now, I would no, there's no way I would do it, having heard myself with that that recording. I used to be a a very avid skier, and um, just, I've had. <laughs> It's getting old stuff, right? I mean, I've just I've had I've had some spinal issues and such that just it doesn't make sense to do that anymore. But Jeffrey, I have been skiing with you on a number of occasions, and um, folks, this is what this is what skiing with Gilstrap and Deaver is like. You get up reasonably early and get to the slopes around nine, I guess. Ski for maybe three hours, then go to lunch, have a couple beers, get back out on the slope two. Another couple of runs, and then you get ready for dinner and drinks at that. Yeah, at, at the bar. So see, we were, we were skiing in Colorado, and by the time it's uh, you know like three thirty there, it's cocktail hour on the East Coast where we live, and it's completely appropriate. And actually, some of the uh, fondest memories I have of that were, and I, I did enjoy the skiing certainly. No I doubt can about too, that. Yeah, but the um, we timed it around the Super Bowl, and we found a. Um, a wonderful, uh, I think it was, wasn't it like a Swiss-type hotel? A Swiss yeah, I think so. Hotel. The lobby of a hotel. And it had that yeah. kind of alpine look about it. Yeah, and had a, a big screen uh, TV, and we would watch the game. Now, you're you're much uh, savvier about sports than I am, but we tended to enjoy the um, uh, the ads uh, mm-hmm. more than the game. And it, often it was, there were teams that we didn't really, uh, really care about, but those were... Uh, those were uh, those were good times. Although I have I have good news for you, I was going to take my nieces out to Vale again, and I, I looked up uh, things to do on the on the mountain. And at Vale, you can actually get what amounts to a skiing tricycle to uh, uh, <laughs> scoot down, and you, you get these little short skis. Uh, I mean, we're t- supposed to be talking about riding, but I, I did find this quite interesting. And you steer, you just steer your way down, and you know, I may just I may just try that. Uh, uh, it, it, although, you know, I, I gave up when you hit a certain age, you give up worrying about your image at some mm-hmm. at some point. I would not have done that. But now, you know, sit on a tricycle and just, you know, zoom down, go to the bar, have fun. I, I think I might try that. Again. You know, you talk about we're supposed to be talking about writing and, and, I, and I guess we are. But the thing is, in whether it's at conferences or or just you get a group of writers to get together. What is the topic that is very rarely discussed and that is writing and the creative process and all that because I, I think everybody understands that that it's so different so if, if the folks who are listening to this if in fact um you you're an aspiring writer and you're trying to find the 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 secret the secret is that there is no secret the the secret is you sit down and and tell the story to the page your way and your way is going to be different than others. And somebody's going to read it and say, you, you're going to break a rule. And, you know, you can't do this. You can't do that. Well, Jeff, you've, we've all broken rules, right? It's, um, that's, that's what makes it uh, unique. That's why we have our, uh, we have our, uh, our voices. Uh, you mentioned conferences. And um, I, would, I would say now that we're getting back to um, relative normalcy, and the conferences are, these are writers' conferences I'm speaking of, starting to come back. Um, are you going to be going to them? Do you enjoy them? I enjoy the company of other writers. Um, I, I enjoy meeting fans um, and recruiting future fans. And you know, I don't know. You know, it's, it's funny. I've, 
I've gotten used to this bizarre, um, it's a lifestyle that's not on the road as much as it used to be. And, you know, I was such a road warrior. I was on airplanes, well, nothing compared to you, but I was on airplanes all the time. And you kind of get into the rhythm of that and it was cool. And now that I haven't done it for two years, two and a half years, whatever it's been, I don't know. I, you know, I certainly want to go back and see old friends. I'd probably be a little more choosy in, in which conferences uh, I want to go to. It has nothing to do with pandemic or anything else. It, it, it just, um, I don't know. It, it's a, it's a, maybe at a different stage uh, in life. We'll see. How about yeah, you? I, I enjoy it for the social uh, uh, reasons. As I say, uh, you know, you're, you're more the extrovert than I am. Introvert, but I, I do like getting out and seeing people. You can't be a hermit all your life. Um, but I, um, um, and I do enjoy meeting, uh, you know, beginning writers. I like teaching my seminars in, uh, in writing, but I'm just, I'm just cutting down a bit. You know, it takes, takes, uh, takes a lot out of you to do this mm -hmm. traveling. Now, a couple of years ago, I did 180,000 miles, uh, on Oof. one airline, one particular airline, and that's not going to, not going to happen again. Um, well, uh, you know, we, uh, as always, time just zips by when we're, we're talking, um, and I think we're kind of near our uh, allotted exit time here. But what we have to do is talk about what we're what we have out now and what's coming up. Go ahead. Where do you want me to go? Yeah, you go ahead first. Okay. Uh, Blue Fire, the second book in the Victoria series, just came out on twenty uh, third on um, of, of February in twenty twenty two. I'm not sure how long this lives on the internet. Um, and it, 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 it's the second of three in the story of, of how Victoria Emerson brings uh, order to chaos as the, in, in the aftermath of, of this war. As outsiders are beginning to filter into the town of Ortho, West Virginia, which is where she ended up, where she's landed and sort of become the de facto leader. And now she has to take people who, you know, her, her neighbors who really just want to be peaceful and exist and lead them into conflict with the folks who are uh, streaming in to uh, hurt them. And then in July, the next Jonathan Grave book, uh, Lethal Game, comes out, which actually takes it takes them to um, Montana in the wintertime on an elk hunt that goes bad. Um, any chance uh, they'll meet Victoria and Jonathan? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think there's a way to make that work. Um, the worlds are... I, I'd really have to... Oh, well, yeah, I guess I could do it before the Victoria books. Before, oh, before that. Well, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that uh, might work. But, uh, work well. I'd look forward to that. What do you got? I, my uh, latest Lincoln Rhyme, uh, Midnight Lock, just came out. And I had a um, uh, the final twist. I did two books uh, recently. The final twist was the uh, third in the Coulter Shaw series. And I also write uh, for Amazon Original Shorts, uh, some short stories that I have coming out this year. And um, I can't... <sighs> I don't know the release dates of those, but of course, you know, in the interest of shameless self-promotion, uh, go to jeffreydeaver.com, and John, you are? JohnGillstrap.com. Okay, and we also do this uh, this stuff called social media. I think it's on the internet or something like that. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, I do Instagram. Do you do Instagram? I have an Instagram account. I don't under, Twitter and Instagram are the two I don't really understand how, the, how they work. I, I, I hammer Facebook pretty hard. If you want to see the cutest puppy in the history of puppies, I've been slamming Facebook pretty hard with that. John Gilstrap author. Yeah. It's a joy. And to see this guy who writes about such tough characters and the cutest little puppy in the world, it, <laughs> it, it does affect your image, John. I don't know whether that's good or bad. So, um, 
All right. Well, as always, great talking to you. And uh, I hope we can do this again sometime. I, I do. I hope so, too. If nothing else, we'll see you at the next happy hour. Fair enough. Thank you for listening. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about upcoming episodes, to read a transcript of this episode, to buy the books discussed here, and for more information about our sponsors, bookfinity.com and Buxton Books. Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment. Cheers.